My name is Dr. Brendan McCarthy. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Protea Medical Center, and I want to welcome you to my podcast. I should take a minute here and let you know that I like to cite what I do. You know, anybody could sit here on the internet and, and make claims and, and say things. It's, it's important you understand where I'm coming from and why I think the way I think, what informs me, what drives my thinking. So I use research to direct me. I use uh, uh, peer-reviewed journals. Uh, sometimes I'll use just regular old-fashioned medical school textbooks. But whenever I say something, I want you to know that it comes from research. If I say something from experience, I promise you I'll let you know. I'll say, you know, this is something my, I've experienced in my, my, my practice of medicine. This is my personal opinion. This is what I think. But when I say something is based in science, when I say progesterone plays a role with an anxiety, I want you to know, there is research behind this. The science is there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a little thing up here that you can say, okay, he's citing something when you see that. And then you go down to the description section. There'll be a timestamp and it'll be the studies that I'm looking at. And I encourage you to look at this. I encourage you to look at this. Become informed. Become aware. It's one thing for have someone sitting here and, and telling you these hormones play a role in this aspect of your health and in your life. And it's one thing to just listen to it. And, and it could sound completely logical and great. It's another to understand it at the next level and to do your own homework so that way you own that information as well. But also let you scrutinize it yourself and say, I don't know if I agree with that. And now you're coming from the perspective of having looked at the research, read it yourself, and then saying, I disagree or I agree. That brings me to one other point I want to bring up quickly is this. Research can be confusing and difficult to read. I know. I know. I remember in the beginning of medical school, it was hard for me to decipher research and understand it. Take time. It's worth it. You will understand it over time. Do your best. Circle back to it. Look for other citations, other studies, other articles around that area to support it. But on the whole, looking at the uh, abstract with research, it could be a little nerdy here and there, but it's not too bad. So I wanted to go today and talk about something that's near and dear to my heart is uh, women's medicine, women's health. And this is something that my practice is centered upon. I would say five years ago, maybe six years ago, my wife and I were, were sitting down at the dinner table and I was trying to come up with a, a presentation to uh, do before a corporation explain the impact of uh, hormone balance on productivity in women. And my wife and I were trying to figure out, she was helping me try and figure out how to word this, how to communicate it in a way that people will understand. And um, we came up with a patient we named Julie. And she's an amalgam of many patients that I've seen. And it's very common in my practice to see a case similar to what Julie's is, as I'm going to describe. Women's health is near and dear to my heart. And... It is a centerpiece of my practice, and it is the most rewarding work that I've ever done or could have imagined doing. Six years ago, I was invited to speak before a corporation regarding the impact that hormones and neurotransmitters have on productivity. And I wanted to make a presentation that would grab people and something that would um, really touch them in a way then other than science and numbers and statistics. And 
my wife helped me. Uh, my wife is the my partner. My wife is not just my wife. She's my partner. She owns half of the practice with me. She's a nutritionist uh, here at Protea Medical Center. Uh, and so she helped me come up with this amalgam of many of my patients. And so we came up with this woman named Julie. And we used it to describe the arc of her life and the impact hormones have on her brain chemistry, on her mood and who she was. And that's where this presentation originated. And over the years, I've rewritten it. Um, a big section of my book is about this. You know, I use this to describe so much in my book. So, um, yeah, without further preamble, the, uh, let me tell you the story of Julie. Before I do, I want to say in my medical opinion, and I would say research supports me a little bit here, that there is largely uh, a lot of neglect regarding the care of women in medicine. And uh, I'll do a podcast in the near future regarding that and the treatment of women for, for PMS and, and uh, menopause. But with that said, you know, since 1931, we have understood that PMS is strongly associated with progesterone deficits in a woman. And we've known this since then. Um, over 90% of women experience PMS at some point in their lives, 90% of them. And by way of contrast, 19% of men experience erectile dysfunction at some point in their lives. And what's important to know here is that we spend five times more on research around erectile dysfunction than we do on PMS. Erectile dysfunction is important. I'm not going to minimize that. And, I, and, I, and it's valid, it's important, and we're going to do a podcast on that as well. And, and, I, and I take it very seriously and I care about that. With that said, again, five times more money spent on something that affects 19% of men versus 90% of women. There's a disconnect happening. Um, instead of trying to understand the underpinnings of PMS and the impact hormones have on neurotransmitters, it seems that the standard of healthcare has been to basically medicalize women's mental health. Over the past 20 years in my practice, my approach has evolved. You know, when I first got to medical school, it was, it was very rudimentary. And over the years, I've learned and I've grown. And um, originally, you know, I was just doing basic labs and it wasn't very well timed. I didn't really understand. I wasn't doing nutrition. You know, but over the years, I've developed that understanding and that protocol and that approach to my patients. Um, we use timed lab work. We use um, hormone replacement therapy. We use nutrition. We use a lot of lifestyle. And that's how I've approached PMS. And I've had tremendous success with it. And it's the most rewarding success. Um, in 2018, I wrote a book, you know, just covering what my experiences have been. And... Um, it's dedicated to my patients. And this lecture I'm about to do now, this little talk, this podcast, hold on. And this podcast I'm gonna do here basically is a summation of my work in the field of hormone replacement therapy for women. So Julie, as I mentioned in the beginning, is an amalgam of many patients that I've seen. And I wanna start off with Julie when she's 13 years old. She has her first period. And, and in the beginning, it's you know a little complicated. And over the next year or so, it becomes more and more painful. And she has heavier periods, more cramping. Uh, she was using over-the-counter pain medications at first, but over the year, it becomes to the point where she can't go to school, so she's missing time from school. And her parents, as they should, bring her to her pediatrician. Uh, 
So at 13 years old, she's presenting to the pediatrician with you know, uh, uh, PMS and, and, and dysmenorrhea, pain with her cycle, heavy periods. At 14 years old, Julie presents to her pediatrician, her parents bring her to her pediatrician, and the pediatrician looks at the case and prescribes her oral contraceptives, oral birth control. She's 14. So at 14 years old, she's put on oral contraceptives, and her mom and dad, you know, were so conditioned, they just like, okay, well, that's what the doctor said. But in the back of their minds, it's like, why, why is my 14-year-old daughter on contraceptive? She's not sexually active. Why? Why? That's the first thing. They, they ask in their heads, but they don't really act on it. They just follow the directions because the doctor knows best. So fast forward with her life, you know, she moves to being 18 years old, and uh, she gets to college, and her period's under control. Maybe she has to switch her birth control here and there. You know, that's what happens. Uh, maybe have a side effect here and there. But she starts, noticing at 18, she starts noticing at 18 years old, you know, 19, she's starting to have more issues with her mood. Uh, she starts noticing that she has a low libido, which is not normal at that age group. And uh, she just attributes it to the stress of going to college. And that's normal. And she progresses forward with her life as is. Upon graduation of college, uh, Julie finds a job. She starts her career. You know, normal kid. In the beginning, she works hard and she does her best, but she feels a lot of stress. She feels obligated to outperform her peers. She does her, sorry, she feels obligated to do more and perform better than her peers. Um, she begins having frequent headaches. She has occasional anxiety. Um, most of the symptoms are worse around her cycle, but she just kind of pushes through it. You know, she takes her over-the-counter uh, pain medications with crampy if needed, but she just kind of pushes through. So, Upon graduation from college, Julie finds a job. She begins her career. Uh, in the beginning, she works hard. She feels a lot of stress, you know, but she feels obligated to do more and perform at her highest level as possible. At this point, she starts having frequent uh, headaches. She has occasional anxiety. Uh, most of these symptoms are worse around her cycle, but, you know, she just pushes through and, and she progresses. Julie will take pain relievers for her migraines, and she ignores her anxiety. Um, she keeps her position at her job. She gets promoted. At 26, she's moving forward with her career. She meets a guy. They fall in love, get married. At 27, she stops her oral contraceptives, and then around 30, she conceives her first child. Over the next few years, from about five years, Julie has two more children. At 36, Julie returns back to work, and now she's on birth control again. Gets back on birth control, gets back to work. Uh, she works harder now. She puts in more energy than she did before into her job. The anxiety that she had ignored in the past now comes back, and it's worse. It's difficult to get through the day without addressing it to some degree. And so she speaks to her doctor. He prescribes her Xanax, and she doesn't take it. She's read about it. She understands it may have some side effects and problems, but she chooses not to take it this time. But still, she has this anxiety. So once Julie's come back to work, you know, She's moving through. She's trying to push her anxiety to the side. She's doing mindfulness exercises, some meditation stuff. Maybe she's, you know, uh, um, having some comforting tea. That's what a lot of times patients do in the very beginning. Um, as she progresses moving forward, you know, Julie's lost most of the weight that she gained during her pregnancy. Uh, but over the next few years, it starts to come back, and she struggles to see results. She does everything she can. She exercises. She she cuts back on her calories, but she can't lose that weight. So she goes back to her doctor and he just tells her to eat less and do more. So Julie has lost much of the weight that she gained during her pregnancy, you know, but then over the next few years, the weight starts coming back and everything she tries to do to lose that weight doesn't work. She just keeps gaining that weight. 
So she presents to her doctor thinking there must be something wrong. And he just looks at her and he says, you know, this is the solution. This is to eat less and do more. And that's the standard advice. And so then Julie then does that. She lowers her calories down to 1,200 calories a day. And she joins in and gets into the several races in her neighborhood. She has mud runs and she does a, a marathons and she does all this exercise. And the thing is, she didn't lose any weight. At 39, Julie's day starts around 5 a.m. She wakes up, she does an exercise video at home if it's the weather's not great or she runs around the neighborhood. Around 6.30, she gets the kids out of bed, make sure they have their breakfast, make sure they have their clothes, make sure their shoes match, and sends them on their way. Julie gets in her car, she goes to work, and she starts her day. Um, she's dedicated to her job, she does her best to outperform her superior's expectations, and she works. Uh, she comes home after work, she gathers the kids, puts them in the minivan, brings them to soccer or softball or whatever it is that they're doing after school because kids are doing something always. And then uh, after sports, she brings them home. She supervises homework while she's making dinner. Um, at 6.30, dinner's put on the table. About 7.15 or so, she clears the table, um, cleans the kitchen, does the dishes. At 8 o'clock, she tucks in the kids, you know, folds some laundry while she's watching TV. And around 10 o'clock, she goes to bed, and the next day, the... Day repeats, does the same thing. At 43 years old, Julie presents to clinic and sees her physician. She's now having symptoms of insomnia. She has uncontrolled weight gain. The races didn't work. Low calories didn't work. She has fatigue. She has no libido. She has slight depression. Her physician runs a battery of tests. He tells her she's fine. You're fine. He prescribes her Ambien for her sleep. He recommends a low-dose antidepressant. He tells her that if she were to exercise and do a little bit more and maybe lose a little bit more weight, her libido would come back. <laughs> it's, it's, hard. It's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to do this. Every, all these years doing this presentation, it still is hard to talk about this. Because in, in my end, um, I, I see these women I see these women. Let me keep going. You know, Julie goes to her doctor and, and does all these things right. She's doing the right thing. And she wants to ask her doctor, like, what happened to her weight? She wants to ask, what happened to her body? What happened to her happiness? You know? She doesn't want to live like this. But she doesn't ask. She takes the advice and goes. At 48, Julie is now borderline diabetic. She has thin hair. She has fatigue. She takes a low-dose antidepressant. She takes Ambien for sleep. She takes over-the-counter medications for weight loss, stuff she buys at the vitamin store. She still takes birth control. Uh, her cycles are increasingly light, and um, she often wonders if there's another way. I, I see this in my practice at every stage, from the young girl to the menopausal. And what should she expect? You know? What, what, is, what is the current understanding here? What should she expect from her doctors? There's so much more I want to get into with this case with Julie. And believe it or not, I rehearsed this at 25 minutes. <laughs> I rehearsed it at 25 minutes 
so many times at home today getting ready for this. Um, but all the years doing this talk, I've never been able to do it in the right amount of time. I just, you know, anyway. Um, I'm going to make this into two parts uh, so that I can be more detailed and not rush through it. Um, so please tune in for the next part. That'll be coming up. And uh, as always, when you like, when you share, when you subscribe to the podcast, it helps me understand this is the kind of material that you want. And I will continue producing that for you. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. And again, please tune in for part two of Julie. Thank you.